At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great weekend. Dan Hampton's going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour. The lieutenant colonel, now retired, 20 years in the Air Force. Uh, worked Kosovo, Iraq, Gulf War, everything. New York Times bestselling author. I want to get his perspective on what the MiGs would do and what things are like on the ground. Uh, things are really uh, getting more and more difficult for all sides. Day 26 is what we're up to. We'll discuss that and, of course, take your calls. And you could write me, BrianKilmead.com, and you could go as get this show, BrianKilmeadShow.com, if you happen to leave your affiliate. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets off a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. Oh, really? What a false choice. Dealing with Iran. Dems say they have no choice. Any reasonable person would say talks with the terrorist nation led by Russia has to be the stupidest high-stake decision the world has done since Biden's epic fail in Afghanistan. Let's discuss it. Number two. There are compromises for which we cannot be ready as an independent state. Uh, any compromises uh, related to our territorial integrity and our sovereignty, the Ukrainian people have uh, spoken about it. Uh, they have greeted them with weapons in their hands. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, he is his best salesperson. Story of two talks. What should Zelensky accept and demand? And as President Biden heads to Brussels, what should his message be? Let's talk about it. Number one. This isn't the first three weeks, and these are quite senior generals. The bottom line is that their command and control has broken down. Their communications have been jammed by the Ukrainians. Their secure comms didn't work. Such a great uh, insight. Day 26. The battle on the ground moves to a new phase as Russia fails spectacularly to blitz into Ukraine and take the capital in a couple of days and kill Zelensky. Now they're trying to rubble cities and taking aim at civilians from the perimeter. What is our answer? I just don't know how many more people have to die before we do something. I'm just not really sure where we go from here. And I, I'm not saying we should necessarily get troops on the ground. But what are people going to say when they look back and see thousands of civilians killed and targeted, theaters blown up when you have the sign beneath the building from seen from above that says children, and they still blow up the theater? They blow up a, a studio, an artistic studio, which is a bomb shelter. They blow it up knowing it's filled with civilians. And then they're picturing, uh, rounding up civilians uh, in buses and sending them to camps inside Russia. How much more evil can we actually stand? While the Ukrainians fight uh, as, as proving as adept, resourceful, and resilient as any uh, series of fighters I've ever seen. We're not going to see anything like this for a long time. 
And what uh, Zelensky's done brilliantly is not only be a great symbol of strength and courage, but work the Parliament of Canada, of the U.K., of the U.S., the Bundestag of Germany, and then over the weekend of Israel, saying this, cut to. I don't need to assure you how uh, our history is interweaved closely, you know, the history of Ukrainians and Jewish people in the past and now in these terrible times. We're in different states and live under very different conditions, but the threat is one. Uh, Both of us have the same threat of total destruction of the people, state, culture, and even the name, Ukraine, Israel. Look, and he also called them out. Stop being an honest broker. Side with us. But if they're doing it in order to be an honest broker and maybe broker some peace, he can understand it. But so far, we have not seen those strong voices of support come out for Ukraine. In fact, last weekend, President Zelensky said, I had a conversation with uh, Prime Minister Bennett, and he basically told us to give up land for peace. Really? Of all countries, not to give up land for peace, I would assume Israel would not be for that. I don't have to find that anymore. All right, so let me just give you an idea of what's going on uh, on the ground. Russia has lost at least five generals, lost another one yesterday. They lost nine commanders uh, on the ground. So that's uh, battalion commanders, or whatever they call them in Russian, lost because these guys are leading from the front because there's nobody to lead. Them. There's nobody to lead if they stay behind. As, as General Petraeus mentioned in our open, there's almost no command. Uh, you got to get in their face and tell them what to do because they have no. Uh, they they seem to have lost their ability to communicate with each other. So the U.S. fears that Russia is setting up these concentration camps, as I mentioned. So the first phase is done, and Russia failed. The first phase, two or three days, we win, we decapitate, we put our decapitate, kill everybody. We decapitate the government, put somebody else in there. We go to the Russian-speaking areas, get some great video of them greeting us like liberators. But even the Russian-speaking areas want nothing to do with you. They want to be part of the West and part of Ukraine. And Zelensky is, if he had left, maybe this whole thing falls apart, like Gahani. But instead, he stays. What bothers me most is General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, predicted that Kiev would fall in two days. Really? Great to have this great military expert. Nice doom and gloom. And we also heard the White House is telling people they expect Zelensky to be dead within a week. That's okay with you? A, dem- a democracy fighting for freedom from repression in Russia, and we're going to let it go because they're not in NATO. That, to me, is unbelievable. Zelensky actually asked Russia for uh, Israel for the Iron Dome, which is great. The big story is is Maripol. I don't know if you heard, but 5 o'clock their time, they had a deadline. When sun comes up, the Russians told uh, the Ukrainians, uh, drop your weapons and leave. You can leave and not get hurt. Besides, if you don't leave, we're going to kill you all. And they said, uh, screw you, we're not surrendering. Maripol's a key city. If you have the map in front of you, you could see. It, really, it links Crimea and the Donbass region. That's the land bridge. And gets them closer and closer to moving further, uh, further uh, west towards the water. Um, and towards the Black Sea. So that's a big deal. In Kiev, we understand they're about 25 kilometers or 20 miles outside the city and digging in. They're also beginning to mine outside the perimeter, so they're stalled out, and they know they can't go further. And if you want to imagine Kiev, picture New York City, only a little bit bigger, is 320 square miles. New York City's 300 square miles. So they are bombing not Kiev military installations or trying to get at the military. They're bombing apartment buildings, schools, 
and they tried to blow up a theater. Today we found out that firefighters were trying to rescue people from a shopping mall because they're just trying to destroy everything from the outside, pretty much like cowards. Mickleleave is an area that's really the backstop to keeping Odessa from the hands of the Russians. Odessa is what they want. That means they control the higher Black Sea. What's left of Ukraine would be totally landlocked. But Mikhailiv would just won't quit. They've devastated them. They say 50 to 100 missile strikes a day for the past two weeks, and they have not budged. They have two key bridges into the city. One is rigged to blow. Right now they're using it to get supplies in and out. But when they feel as though there's more people coming through than the enemy, the Russians, they'll blow it up. So the U.S. has promised another billion in aid. My question is, what are they actually getting? And what is happening on the ground? Anytime they're head-to-head, Russia seems to be losing. From afar, they can't seem to have the missile defense system to block what's volleying in. Here's General David Petraeus, cut nine. Very, very uncommon. This isn't the first three weeks, and these are quite senior generals. The bottom line is that their command and control has broken down. Their communications have been jammed by the Ukrainians. Their secure comms didn't work. They had to go to single channel. That's jammable, and that's exactly what the uh, Ukrainians have been doing to that. They use cell phones. The Ukrainians blocked the prefix for Russia, so that didn't work. Then they took down 3G. They're literally stealing cell phones from Ukrainian civilians to communicate among each other. So what happens? The column gets stopped. An impatient general is sitting back there in his armored or whatever vehicle. He goes forward to find out what's going on because there's no initiative. Again, there's no non-commissioned officer corps. Uh, There's no sense of initiative at, at junior levels. They wait to be told what to do gets up there, and the Ukrainians have very, very good snipers, and they've just been picking them off left and right. I and, and at least four of these five are absolutely confirmed, and I think the fifth uh, we'll hear today. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, the Ukrainians say there's nine. So a couple of things. General Perkins, a four-star general, now a Fox News contributor, will be joining us later in the week, I'm sure. He said that the fact that they're using these, just bombing these cities shows frustration. The fact that they shot off two hypersonic missiles is not something that's really effective. You don't want a hypersonic missile in a, in a fight with a neighbor. You know, you want that to go around the globe to be missile defense that we maybe have a nuclear warhead. But hypersonic missiles is basically showing off, or it shows you that you don't have anything left, that you, you don't even have the precision weapons to, to strike, let's say, if you spotted Zelensky or you had a prime target like a Klitschko. You don't even have the precision weapons left, so you're just using basically dumb bombs, shooting them into big buildings, trying to kill as many people as possible, not caring that there's 1.5 million kids that have had to be, leave the country, and there are dozens that have been killed. Killed. How do you sleep with that? So Captain Gary Tabak was on Fox & Friends this weekend. What makes him unique is he's, he's a United States Navy, now-retired officer, and he, he's the first Soviet-born U.S. military officer. He thinks he knows the mindset of the Russians. Cut 12. Cut 12. The mass of these uh, Russian soldiers are peasants, uneducated, and they're, uh, they're for a month, they're afraid to leave their uh, armored vehicles at night because they would get killed. They haven't bathed. They, they're hungry. Uh, they're scared. They're, they're feared. And so they start conducting, they start acting like barbarians there, and it's all over the place. And they're kidnapping people. And uh, in Mariupol, for instance, they start bomb- bombing, and they realize that they're bombing schools, they're bombing hospitals. Yeah, I mean, they could do that, and some are, are doing self-mutilation. They're shooting themselves in order to go to the hospital and get out the front lines. That make When I hear these stories and I hear that they're prevalent, you hear from other people, you wonder if uh, Zelensky, by holding out, will win, flat-out win. Can he actually win by surviving? 
Instead, instead of saying, okay, you can hold on to Crimea, the Donbass region, and we'll take what we have, maybe by holding out, and it's the toughest decision anybody could make as president, because people will die. But by holding out, maybe get your country back and save the rest of Eastern and eventually Western Europe. Can they win? And I think that's what we should be considering. What does a win look like? And that's what Mitch McConnell brought up yesterday. He said, I'm looking at what's happening here, and I see an opportunity for a win. And that's why I think that Joe Biden should make that clear in his address in Brussels. Cut 31. I think he needs to step up his game. He's generally done the right thing, but never soon enough. I mean, let's take a look at what's happened here. The Ukrainians have killed more Russians in three weeks than we lost in Afghanistan and Iraq in 20 years. I think we ought to go into this believing the Ukrainians can actually win. And the way they win is for us to get these defensive weapon systems to them as rapidly as possible. Uh, For example, I am perplexed as to why we couldn't get the uh, Polish-Russian MiGs uh, into the country. So what I'd like to see the president do is to reassure our Eastern Bloc uh, allies it's fine to go to Brussels, fine to go to Berlin. I'd like to see him go to Romania or Poland mm-hmm. or to the Baltics. They're right on the front lines right. and need to know that we're in this fight with them to win. I'm going to take a break right now so we can get some calls, one 408 But he said something really significant. This is a powerful guy. He's not one to bluster. He's, he, you know, he's not a, a rah-rah uh, you know, Vince Lombardi, you can go out there and do it. You got to find Newt Rockney, you got to find a way to win. He's just looking at this strategically. He says, We can win. Why don't we talk about winning? And by winning is surviving. And you survive and you bleed them out. Not only is their reputation done, their economy is flat on its back and their military is no longer feared. What does it take to get to a win? And that's we take that goal and work our way backwards. Can we possibly be an inspiration? Please, possible. And look, I know he's not healthy. But if he can go ride a bike through the cliffs of Delaware, I believe we should get him right into Ukraine. What a great sight it would be to see Joe Biden talking to Zelensky face to face. What a what a motivation that would be for those men and women and some are civilians who have to find a way to survive, get food and medicine for their kids trying to survive this country to see the president in there. When you have three prime ministers from three Eastern European countries going there last week, one at the U.S. president this week, I dare Russia to go bomb Kiev with the president of the United States there. Dare them. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So I think Putin must be, should be worried that uh, China, his only meaningful ally, is distancing itself. I mean, that's the way I read this call. China wants to distance itself enough from Putin that it isn't taken down 
with this uh, invasion of Ukraine. I mean, in a sense, the biggest obstacle to Xi's China dream, as he calls it, this mm -hmm. idea of China emerging as a dominant player, right now is the alliance with Russia, which is a pariah, uh, which, which poisons uh, Xi's future. So I, I think mm -hmm. the, the, the call was part of uh, a number of things we've seen. So I, I did not get uh, David Nation is so tapped in, but I would love to read the transcript because I didn't hear much substance out of that China Biden call, that President Xi and, and Biden call. I wanted to find out what progress they made. I mean, a couple of days before that, I think Jake Sullivan and Blinken met for seven hours with China. And I see nothing but sarcastic, belligerent answers in their communiques. So I don't know where Dave Ignatius got that. He's a friend of the show and his source is usually great. But most other people cannot get think that we made much progress in that meeting. Uh, Bob, listen in Oregon. Hey, Bob. Good morning, Brian. I know you're busy. I got three things I wanted to point out. One, you are 100% right. Zelensky is winning. Number two, the secret, like you started to say, is in that laptop why our economy and our gas prices are all messed up. And number three, the laptop most important thing for all my mechanic friends the laptop, out there. Whoa, whoa. The laptop meaning hunters? Yes. Absolutely. The, uh, the Hunter laptop, all your secrets are in there. And if we can get that out there, you'll see why our gas prices and everything's going crazy. Well, well, I, I'm a couple of things. I don't I do know prices are everywhere, but I'm not. There's no big mystery to this, Bob. The mystery is they refuse to drill. That's it. They believe that we are our futures, renewables and batteries. And yet they have not invested in cobalt or any of the rare earth you need to make that stuff. We have nowhere to store that stuff. We have nowhere to get rid of it. So that's another challenge. But we're not ready to transition off fossil fuels. And in a time of an emergency, this guy won't move. So I don't think the answer to the uh, inflation, high gas prices are in that laptop. But a lot of other stuff is. Um, let me see. Do we have enough time? Yeah, let's go. Let's get Gunner. Uh, uh, Gunner, what's on your mind? Hey, man. Um, I listen to your show for a minute. And uh, I, I respect a lot of things y'all got to say. But I'm looking at the terms of, uh, you know, when we're talking about cost of lives and um, uh, uh, cost of uh, the Russian, um, like, you know, supplies and how they're going about things. But if you, if you look into it, uh, you know, from a young age, I was very into history. My dad had me on it like well, like anything. Okay. I know my war history of multiple countries more than I know, <laughs> I'll probably say, how to write in cursive. Uh, but uh, for a long time and a long history, Russia has had – a huge uh, uh, thing with expending large amounts of personnel, material, and, and supplies to obtain their goal. So when I hear like, oh, they've killed a couple thousand, I'm all like, that, that doesn't budge me a lot because I'm, I'm wondering, why is this man still doing this? There's got to be some sort of ulterior motive behind what is going on. Gunner, I think he thought it would be a walk in the park. I think because he took Crimea so easily and he took the Donbass region so easily, even though the fighting kept going on. And... I think he thought, you know, I'll go grab this and I'll show everybody and he'll never have to bother me again uh, asking about the U.N. Yeah, excuse me, asking about NATO. I think it's that simple. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Because they're losing, uh, things are not going according to the plan. They already lost, to my account, 10 generals, two of them major generals, two star generals. Their offensive came to a halt, so they're taking a defensive posture. They're digging in to protect their airfields, to conduct the terrorists. They're terrorists. They're rabies dog. I don't know. It's a rabies animal living in our house, and we're thinking about letting him eat our other animals or by giving him a treat, he's not going to bite us. We're dealing with a rabies animal that has to be uh, has to be destroyed. There is just no other option about it. So they know that. They're not stupid. They knew they got themselves in a lot of trouble, so they're going crazy. And that's Captain Gary Tabak. And one thing that stands out is he's the first Soviet-born U.S. military officer, so he knows the mindset of the Americans, us, and he knows the mindset of Russia. And he, just, he, he does believe the wheels are coming off. Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton joins us now. He spent 20 years in the Air Force, fought in Iraq, Kosovo, first Gulf War, New York Times bestselling author, has a new book. His next one's coming out soon, next month, The Astonishing World, uh, World War II Saga of One Man's Defiance and Indomitable Spirit. Uh, that should be great. Colonel, welcome. Hey, Brian. It's good to talk to you again. been a while. Yeah, I know. It has. Sir, Colonel, first off, you, you heard with this uh, former Soviet uh, a Soviet-born American captain had to say about the Russian mindset. Do you buy into it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the only thing that is that, that Putin and his ilk are going to respond to at this point is force. I'm not advocating going to war, but I'm advocating a very, very strong stance right now that sends a message that cannot be misunderstood. So what would that message be? The president's heading over to Brussels. Are people going to be watching what he says in NATO, listening? Well, I have as much faith in him as I did in, in Harris's trip. So uh, well, let's hope something comes out of that, but I won't hold my breath. Uh, first of all, the no-fly zone issue. Over the Ukraine, it won't work under the current conditions. But I do think that 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 a NATO buildup, as much as I hate to, to advocate for that, along NATO's border is going to send an unmistakable message to Putin that, hey, you bit off more than you can chew. We're not weak. We're not fragmented. You've actually given us a common enemy, which is you. And if and if and if you don't answer the demands for peace, if you don't stop this now, it's going to it's going to get a lot worse for you. I don't think the nuclear issue is is that uh, dangerous at the moment. I know it, it sounds bad to say that, but I think there are enough people around Putin that wouldn't go for that. However, chemical weapons is another matter altogether, and that's something we should be watching very carefully. Yeah, so I'm sure we're talking about it, so they must have intelligence to do about it. Do you have any idea, and if you don't, I understand, because no one, I don't think the Secretary of Defense had the answer when he was asked that this weekend. Or, we know we're writing checks, and we know we have equipment. Is it getting in? And, and are they are they getting it in a timely fashion? Uh, they are getting it in, and, and I'll tell you this, Brian. Nobody moves men and equipment around the world better than the United States does. I mean, we're going to get an armored brigade from the coast of the United States into Poland faster than Putin has gotten to Kiev. All right, so nobody can do it better than us. The problem with with the Americans, especially leadership is staying power. And it's, that's, that's a political issue. I don't have an answer for that. I wish we had somebody different in the White House, but we're stuck with what we got at the moment. But right now they need a missile defense system. How do you guard against people that want to sit on the outside and just bomb you all day and night? Yeah, that's that's the tough one. Like somebody else has mentioned before, they're not winning militarily, and they know that. Putin attacked too early. You know, he's about a month, six weeks too early. It's just a mud quagmire over there. Tanks don't do well in mud, right? That's one reason why they're stuck. So they're, all they're doing is since they well, can't they got to stay the on the roads, and we know where to find them. 
Well, yeah, and they can't go off the road. It's it's forced. It's mud. It's really not good terrain. So it wasn't good judgment to invade anyway. And when he did it, it was even worse. And he can't win militarily at this point. So he's he's doing what he does best, which is blunt force trauma against civilians and beating up their cities. I think he's trying to work himself into a better bargaining position. And that's something that these diplomats need to re, you know keep in mind. They got us into this by waiting too long. All right, they have to give this guy a way out. If his own people don't do something about him, he's got to have a way out because he's not just going to say, I made a mistake and leave. So here's what I worry about. Since they don't care about the human condition, they don't care about their own people dying, let alone they're actually bombing theater districts, bombing schools and apartment buildings. You've seen this. That's not even propaganda. I mean, this is, you can't even argue that. They're aiming for civilians. When we do that, it's called collateral damage and we have investigations and people are fired. Or, or they're demoted, they're court-martialed, and, uh, and then they're vilified. I mean, Donald Trump, we had Abu Ghraib. As bad as it was, Donald Rumsfeld said, I'll resign if you want. If you want, I'm, I'm ultimately responsible. This is their aim. Abu Ghraib is a good day for them. They're actually taking people out of cities and beginning to put them in prison camps in Russia. Innocent people. So having said that, if they're going to rubble cities and then hold them, go into talks and say, we will take what we have, and if they get close enough to taking the the uh, the shoreline up to Odessa, I mean, don't they? Can't they say they accomplish their goal, being that they don't care about human suffering? They they could, and it's all the way it's spun back in Russia. I think one of the most effective ways to end this from a non-military standpoint is to make certain, or at least try even harder than we are, to make sure the people of Russia know what's going on. You have to recall they're they're in a they're in an authoritarian state. This is probably as bad as it was back during the Soviet Union. He's got absolute control of the media. Uh, and, and the only way it's going to change is when enough Russian people realize that they're being lied to again by somebody sitting in the Kremlin again, and they do something about it. That's what Putin's most afraid of. He's more afraid of his own people, all Russian leaders are, than, than he is of any outside force. And that's where the change hopefully is going to take place. In the meantime, I think I said it the other day on uh, Lawrence Jones's show, we need to turn the airspace over over Ukraine into a if it flies, it dies zone. We can't go in there without a declaration of war, but we can give the Ukrainians every piece of anti-aircraft artillery, surface-to-air missiles, radars, and everything else they need to to deny the you know the airspace over overhead to the Russians. They're doing a pretty good job of it. We could help them do better. You have had 151 combat missions during your 20-year career, so you're no stranger to this. Either is Michael Waltz, spent years in Green Beret. Uh, he's still in the National Guard, used to work for Dick Cheney, who so knows the diplomatic, lawmaking, and uh, war fighting. Here's what he said is what he's picked up so far. Cut 16. Biden, from a macro strategic standpoint, continues to let fear of escalation, and nobody wants World War III, I want to be clear, but he continues to let that fear of Putin's escalation drive his policy. That's actually dangerous because it's giving Putin space to climb up the next rung of that escalation ladder. And I fear the next one is going to be chemical and biological weapons because Biden refuses to lay out the consequences of what will happen if Putin does that. That's a fear you buy into? Absolutely. I think Joe Biden needs to find a stout piece of wood and lash it to his spine. We're past the point 
where he needs to worry about that, okay? Uh, yeah, he, the, the other gentleman's correct. You don't want World War III, but Putin's already there. And you have to ask yourself this question. If he is allowed to declare a victory and, and win in Ukraine, do you think he's going to stop there? That's only going to make him stronger and hungrier, just like it did with Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, any of the others you can name. All right, the only thing they respond to is the threat of force, and then ultimately, unfortunately, if you have to, force itself. So play this out. I mean, if they continue to rubble cities, talks move forward. If he's able to survive this and, and get additional land to Crimea and the Donbass region— Sooner, because, because Russians don't get the real story, America, uh, America will keep bringing up how many civilians they caught, how many people, they, uh, buildings they blew up, and then things will go back to normal, and then all the Baltic nations will gradually get into the crosshairs of a rearmed Russia. So how do we make sure Ukrainians win without putting our people in? Well, like I said, I, 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 think, I think that— uh, he, he's got to be given a way out, and that's up to Zelensky and Putin to decide for the most part. He cannot do this indefinitely, Brian. That's the thing. It's taken a lot longer than he thought anyway, and the longer he tries to hold on like this – I mean, this is not 1990. This is not 1960. The word will get out, and if things do return to a quasi-normal condition like you're suggesting – the word will get out. He won't have any choice. There will be news clips. There will be pictures. People will come back, and the Russian people will find out what has happened. Now, whether that makes a difference or not, I, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I'd like to think it would, but I also know the Russian people's greatest strength and their greatest weakness is that they're just dogmatic willingness to accept their condition and not do much about it until it gets absolutely you know, uh, to an undeniable state. I, I don't know when that's going to happen. In the meantime, again, without a declaration of war, the best that we can do now because of what we did not do in the fall, and by we, I mean the White House, is to supply Ukraine with everything it needs. So I want you to hear, in terms of what the Russian people are thinking, this really courageous uh, female anchor got up, held the sign, don't believe the Russian media, this war, uh, end this war. She evidently went out and was protesting. No one really heard her, so she decided to do it on television. And right now she fears going 10 years to jail. Um, I want you to hear what, uh, what she said yesterday about the situation uh, on the ground there. In fact, uh, she's, uh, she's worried for her safety, but will not leave Russia, which takes tremendous courage. Here's cut 20, Marina Ostinkova. With this action, I wanted to demonstrate to the world that not all Russian people believe the same. And I believe that many people, more than half of the people in Russia, are against the war. And the severe sanctions that uh, the West is imposing on all of the people is probably a correct decision, but you must understand that not just the oligarchs and Putin's uh, closest circle are suffering from these sanctions. Ordinary people, ordinary Russian citizens who are against the war are also being affected. What do you think about, further, what about that courage? And number two is she gives you an idea of what's happening in Russia. Yeah, in her environment today, that's phenomenal what she's doing. Um, I, I am at a loss to explain why she's still alive, except that she went very public with it, and if she disappeared, that might cause problems for him. I, I believe her. I think she's absolutely right. 
most, not most, but a sizable chunk of Russia does not support this. But it, again, you have to recall, they're only being told, most of them, what Putin wants them to hear. And, and even in this country, I mean, think about our, you know, in our own environment, a lot of people rely exclusively on the news and the news media for, for what they, for what they hear and for what they believe. And, and they don't, you know, they don't look into it for themselves. And in most cases, that's okay here. But think about the events of the last two years and how some of that was skewed out of control by other news networks. And then multiply that by, you know, a thousand or a million, and you've got Russia. They're only, they're only eating what they're being fed, a lot of them. So, again, one of the most crucial parts of defeating this and ending this and maybe getting rid of Putin is to make sure the Russian people find out what's really happening. Uh, that would help. Uh, I just think that the social media is evidently finding the, the cyber uh, hackers that cause so much chaos, usually with us, are actually focusing on them now. And evidently yeah. they're doing it through massive text messages, getting it to the Russian people with video. And my hope is that the cyber world will turn on Russia because they're clearly the bad guys in this. Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton, thanks so much. I look forward to your book. I'm sure it's going to be great. It's called Valor, the Astonishing World War II Saga of One Man's Defiance and Indomitable Spirit. It's out May 3rd. Thanks, Colonel. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You got it. one 408 I'll come back and take your calls. Also, we have not really explored the China angle. Their ambassador came in on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan did a great job with him, but what he didn't say is also very important. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm ready for negotiations with them. I was ready uh, um, over the last two years. And I think that... I think that without negotiations, we cannot end this war. Uh, There you go. That is a little of uh, what's going on with negotiations and what is Zelensky saying to Israel yesterday and to us on Friday. And people are fearing that people are going to press him to do a deal that he's not ready to do. I think there's no reason to fear that. I think that, number one, Vladimir Putin can't stop now because if he stops now, he's killed nothing but civilians. His his military prowess has been exposed and lack thereof. His hardware has been uh, antiquated. He's got hypersonic missiles, which is uh, no need in this environment to have a hypersonic missile uh, to blow up a military base you could have done with a normal rocket or any type of what we would say a tomahawk. So he's using things and showing off in a way that shows the desperation. So I worry that in these talks— that if they end right now, and I could not uh, blame President Zelensky for doing it because he sees so much death and destruction of innocent people who are not only in the harm's way, but they're being targeted, targeted, some jail put in concentration camps. If he says, OK, uh, you can keep the Donbass region, you can keep Crimea, and I promise not to join NATO, I just don't think he ha- – if he could find a way to, to understand – that if, if the best assessments possible they can be given, the armaments that are coming that have arrived, and the, and the replenishment of supplies, if he could get all these things, food, obviously, water, he holds out, he would fight for the whole country. He'd be fighting more for his country, more for the free world. And, and that's if, if he could hold out. I talked to General Perkins today. I talked to Newt Gingrich. I talked to others on and offline. They believe time is on Ukraine's side. When you see some of these cities, I wonder. 
Here's what Mike Rogers said, former FBI guy, head of the Select Intelligence Committee in the, in the House. Cut 29. Putin has, he just doesn't have a big victory yet. I mean, he just does, has not taken over any key strategic city to his advantage. Mariupol was supposed to be that because it's yes. right on the water. I think what you're seeing is just another act of desperation. He is losing direct contact with the Ukrainian forces. Now, I'm not saying that they're winning and pushing him back, uh, but they're holding him back, and they're causing enough chaos destruction in his command and control, his logistics lines. They're doing phenomenal insurgency work on his invasion. And I think what you're seeing here is a Putin desperate moment. Either get out, we're going to level the thing, we will take Mariupol. That was one of the big things that the their defense forces even talked about that they had to take Mariupol in the beginning and then they were going to come up around Kiev. So that's the guy just looking at things at, uh, and analyzing it and understanding the intelligence that he, get, he gets now, not as good as what he used to get, but knows how to read and knows how to understand it. So he's not going to get caught up in the emotion of it. So I worry that if things stop right now, he's going to, he could get a death if he's desperate because most of his better fighting forces are in the South. So and they have experience because they've been uh, since 2014, they've been fighting a lot of times losing. But if they go and get uh, uh, Odessa and they go, OK, I'll stop here because now he's acknowledging that Zelensky is president of Ukraine. Now he's saying that now's not the right time for talks. But here's my criteria. Should it be? And now he's saying that, you know, we just want our own security. He's talking a lot different now. And my thing is, in the long run, they're going to say, well, he took Crimea. He took the Donbass region. And then he invaded, and he got the Black Pearl. They said the, the the pearl of the area, and that is this beautiful Odessa area, big vacation area, place for military. And he gets it all. In a couple of years, they'll forget about all the military targets and say, you know, Russia's reemerging. Unless he could just suffer that loss. And I don't think he'll ever recover. And hopefully he'll be out of power. It's a tough call. But that's why this is such an important week. We'll bring you the latest. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hope you had a great weekend. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We are back in action. Uh, by the way, today I'll be on Outnumbered, then hosting the 7 o'clock show uh, for Jesse Waters tonight. So you'll see a lot of me today if you choose to, and I hope you do. Uh, as you know, I'm well, locally here, heard on uh, 77 WABC in New York. Uh, my first guest, also located in New York, Michael Goodwin. Bottom of the hour, we go to Alaska. Governor Mike Dunleavy will be joining us. Uh, they're getting everyone, all these oil producing states have been uh, told to stop pumping, stop flowing them through the pipelines. And now with the uh, prices so high, these governors are speaking up and they're saying, yeah, I could do something about that. But the left is so anti-fossil fuel, they don't want to fuel any more of that. And they'd rather just go get it from, uh, they rather go get it from, I guess, Venezuela uh, or Iran eventually. And who knows Saudi Arabia. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets off a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You heard Chris Murphy really accurately talking about this Iran deal. Uh, dealing with Iran. Dems say they have no choice. Any reasonable person would say talks with the terrorist nation led by Russia has to be the stupidest high-stake decision since they left Afghanistan, which was an epic fail. We'll discuss with Michael Goodwin. Number two. There are compromises for which we cannot be ready as an independent state. Uh, Any compromises uh, related to our territorial integrity and our sovereignty, the Ukrainian people have uh, spoken about it. Uh, They have greeted them with weapons in their hands. Wow. Uh, Here you go. Vladimir Zelensky, story of two talks. What should Zelensky accept and demand when he finally sits down with the other side? And as President Biden heads to Brussels, what should he be talking about as he tries to, at Zelensky's urging, lead the world? Number one. This isn't the first three weeks, and these are quite senior generals. The bottom line is that their command and control has broken down. Their communications have been jammed by the Ukrainians. Their secure comms didn't work. Yeah, that is Dave Petraeus talking about what's gone wrong for the Russians. The battle on the ground moves to a new phase as Russia fails spectacularly to blitz and decapitate in Ukraine. They want to take the capital and kill Zelensky. Now they're trying to rubble cities and taking aim at civilians from the perimeter. What is our answer? What should a good deal or truce look like? Michael Goodwin joins us now. Uh, Michael, you tackle a bunch of issues. Uh, A little bit of Hunter Biden. I want to discuss that. You discuss Iran. But on this... What advice, if you were going to be a speechwriter for President Biden as he addresses the masses in the world in Brussels and the NATO, uh, at NATO, what would you put in that copy? Well, look, Brian, um, I, I believe that Putin is not yet ready for a deal. And so it's not so much what you can offer him that, that he would take, uh, short of capitulation of Ukraine. Uh, so I think what Biden should say is that we have a chance here to deal him uh, a fatal blow, and we should deliver it. We should do whatever we can, not just to help Ukraine defend itself uh, in a minimal sense, but to actually win this war. Because I think if that is done, it will, A, solve Ukraine's problem for forever. Even important, perhaps more important, is that what it would do for the world. Yes. If you take if you take a malign country like Russia sort of off the chessboard in the sense that it's no it's somewhat defanged, uh, Putin will probably be gone, there will still be the issue of those nukes. But uh, but I think that you will have shown that the West can stand up to a authoritarian governments that you want to use might to conquer neighbors and don't don't give a fig's leaf about civilian casualties or anything like that. And so I think this is an important moment for Biden. I think Zelensky is right. Lead the world. Lead the world's democracies in the way that America has for, uh, ever since, uh, you know, almost the dawn of the 20th century, which is that, you know, uh, cre- helping to, to subdue 
uh, Nazism, helping to subdue the Soviet Union. I, I, I mean, and, and, and to win the Cold War, to, to do it without a real war. Uh, I mean, I think these are great accomplishments. The, the fact that immigrants around the world want to come to America. They don't want to go to Russia. They want to come to America. They'll, they'll go to Ukraine at some point when, when life there is restored, hopefully. So I think that's the message that Biden should be proud of. Now, look, his policies don't always support that. I, I think he believes that, but he gets into the weeds and, and he can't find his way out when he talks about fossil fuels, when yeah. he effectively allows open borders. I mean, when he effectively... Uh, uh, supports policies that that basically defund the police. I mean, these, these are things that people around the world want, safety, security, opportunity. That's what America offers, and I think Biden ought to be proud of that. Right. Uh, he should be proud of all the things he's – the border is inexcusable. Uh, right. what, he, what he did in Afghanistan is going to go down in generations for – so embarrassing to our country's legacy – and it's still ongoing, by the way. You want to know who gets it right? Zelensky. He is dressing in high-pressure situations, life and death, literally. He goes to the U.K., the U.S. He goes to Canada. He addresses the Bundestag in uh, in Germany. And then over the weekend, he addresses Knesset in Israel. Here's his message when it comes to giving land to Russia. Cut 26. There are compromises for which we cannot be ready as an independent state. Uh, any compromises uh, related to our territorial integrity and our sovereignty and um, uh, the Ukrainian people have uh, spoken about it. They have not greeted Russian soldiers with a bunch of flowers. Uh, they have greeted them with, with bravery. Uh, they have greeted them with weapons in their hands. So um, forcibly, you cannot make yourself a friend. You cannot curry favor with the citizens of another country forcibly. And that's what he's trying to say. But you wonder how much carnage he can take and if Putin's going to take the South uh, and try to, you know, just expand a little bit about what he has and can declare it a victory. And he's got a buffer zone. So uh, it's going to be a big week to decide if Ukraine's going to be able to withstand this barrage because it looks like outside Maripol, for the most part, the Russians do not have the tactics and the experience to walk the streets and try to gain a city back. Kyrgyzstan's the only city they got back. And do you see the video of the people in the streets protesting and harassing the Russian soldiers? Yeah, look, it, 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 it does seem like a misbegotten idea that Putin could walk in and take the whole country. As you and I have discussed, Brian, he could have had that, that southern uh, eastern region, the Donbass, uh, without a fight, probably. But now I, I'm not even sure uh, Ukraine would give it to him uh, because of, the, of what he has done to the country as a whole. That's why I think the idea that Putin wants peace or something like that, uh, I just don't think it's in the cards. I, I think he, he is in for a dime, in for a dollar on this. And it, it it does bewilder, I think, uh, the West and, and most of the world. Why would he do this? I mean, he's destroying his own country, too. I mean, the, the impacts from this are going to be long-lasting for Russia's economy, uh, for the lives of people there. I mean, they're, they're going to be outcasts, uh, in, certainly in the Western world. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but here we are. And so I think there's no appeasing him at this point.
So uh, let's talk about the other thing that's going on that is almost as big, and that's the Iran deal. This being negotiating Geneva with Russia taking the lead, and we have to sit in an ancillary room. Uh, you believe a total disaster is looming. Why? Well, uh, two points. First, that uh, the deal itself uh, is is not needed. I mean, we we were able to contain Iran more than we had before the deal uh, by Trump's tough policies, uh, taking out Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, which is their main terror group around the world. Uh, that's and heavy, heavy sanctions. Those sorts of things have crushed the economy. Now, look, there have been outlets, China and Russia, of course, the evil empire, China, Russia, and Iran, uh, have worked together on this. But, but the deal gives us nothing we can't have without the deal. And it gives Iran lots of things it can't have with, uh, without the deal. So it, it is not in our advantage. That any deal is in Iran's advantage. I mean, the joke, and, and we Russia— we don't even know the details yet. Russia's going to build their power plant? and then take their uh, nuclear waste into their country, and we're okay yeah. with that? They're not even supposed to be traveling. We're not even that's speaking right. to them. So here's well, that's right. And part yeah. of, so the second part of the, of the deal here is that Russia is the broker. Now, you know, on, as I say in the column, on one hand, America says Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. On the other, he says, oh, would, would, we mind, would you mind brokering this deal with Iran? They're kind of prickly. They won't talk to us directly. So yeah. we trust you to do that. Now, which is it? Is he a war criminal or a trusted partner and negotiator? So, so, the, so yeah. there's that problem. And then, as you said, he would get exemptions from all of the sanctions put on uh, Russia over Ukraine in order to work with Iran after a deal is finished. Now, what sense does that make? And then finally, as I report in the column too, Brian, there is this movement, this proposal circulating on the Biden administration to remove the terror designation from the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. I mean, that is essentially the military in Iran, and they are a terrorist organization. They have spread terror far and wide. Soleimani was the elite commander of the elite central corps. But they, wherever they go, they've been in Syria. They've been, they've been. In in Lebanon. I mean, they've been working these, you know, they're, they're using the Houthis to attack Saudi Arabia. They're attacking yeah, I want you our to hear. allies I know. I want, you to hear. I want you to hear this exchange. Everything you said seems logical. Here's the Democratic perspective on this. Cut 32. Chris Murphy. Is this the right time to do the Iran deal? There's no choice but to do the Iran deal. I, I mean, we're can you trust the Russians? I mean, this is a case where we have to, we're, we're, we're working with the Russians on this. It seems like an awkward time to do that. Cut the Russians out. I mean, you don't need the Russians, right? The material that was being removed from Iran on the original nuclear deal mm-hmm. went to Russia. There are other countries that can take it. You ultimately don't need the blessing of the U.N. to get this deal done. You think it's bad to have Russia as a nuclear power invading a sovereign neighboring country. Imagine what happens if Iran is a nuclear power. The rest of the Middle East will... So you're good with doing weapons. this if we find a way to keep Russia out of the deal. You'd keep them completely out of the deal. Well, either if they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets up a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. I have problems with that. Do you? Yeah, 
uh, about 10 problems in, the, in just a few minutes, Brian. I mean, it, it's ridiculous to say with or without Russia in the deal. First he says get rid of Russia. Then he realized how are we going to do that because the Iranians won't talk to the Americans. So he, he backtracks on his own proposal. He, I think Russia's involvement alone should kill the deal. One of the, Their lead negotiator was seen boasting that the Iranians got more than, they, than we thought they would. The Chinese helped, he said. So we are now up against China, Russia, and Iran together in this deal. What sense does it make? None. We don't even know what's in the deal yet. None. We can imagine with Joe Biden pulling the strings, it will be a bad deal. And then the Russia thing is very important. How are we are undercutting our positions in Ukraine by saying, go ahead and talk to the Iranians on our behalf. And then this thing with the terror designation of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, it's absolutely insane. These are the people who do all the terrorism, and we're going to say you're not That's- a terrorist. It's crazy. I mean, this this Afghanistan, Iran deal, and now what we're doing, what we're witnessing in Ukraine, not fully arming them for this conflict and the, the back and forth that we're witnessing here. I've never seen three events come together like this in a term, let alone at the same time. And we're not even and, done with and, Afghanistan. It's and then this is what you get with a weak commander in chief. Absolutely. Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. Uh, pick it up. His column talks about the Iran deal. He also has something about uh, Hunter, which I think is important. Hunter Biden, that is. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Brian. one 408 We'll be back with your calls in just a moment. Then at the bottom of the hour, uh, we'll be joined by Governor Mike Denlevy of Alaska. Can he indeed pump more? I think the answer is yes. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. China's trusted relations with Russia is not a liability. Actually, it's an asset in the international efforts to solve uh, the crisis in a peaceful way. Why can't you condemn this as an invasion? Mm-hmm. Well, let's don't be naive condemnation. It sounds naive to say that's not doesn't, invasion. It doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> Don't be naive. What a put down. That is the Chinese ambassador to the United States sitting down with Margaret Brennan face the nation saying, yeah, it's an asset that we have good relations with Russia. Yes, it's also a responsibility. Because if you said get out or don't do it, they would not have done it because you're backstopping all of what they did. And believe me, I don't think this is benefiting China. In a small way, it distracts us from China. They're able to, I know they fully militarized those, those islands they made in the middle of the uh, South China Sea. And they're able to do some things with maybe not our full focus. But for the most part, they've united the Europeans. They have united uh, who were breaking up after the UK left and others were talking about leaving the EU. Now NATO, they say, what's going on here? No one's ever given their 2% of the GDP. Now almost everybody has pledged to do it, including Germany. And the United has won another emergency meetings happening this week. Everything that China didn't want to happen has happened, and it's a responsibility. And instead, you get arrogance coming out of the communications of their seven-hour meeting, their two-hour meeting with the president, and then that uh, that interview yesterday on Face the Nation. Joe, listen on WRCN in Long Island. Hey, Joe. Brian, good morning. Listen, just to follow up on you, Michael Goodman, why are we arming our enemies? What does Russia have on 
uh, and Iran and China have on Biden. And you got to say to you, Clinton's Obama and Kerry. The CIA has been trying to stop rogue regimes for 75 years from getting a softball size of softball size of uranium, which they can bring into New York City in the subway. We'll blow up the entire city, New York City, blow it up in a suitcase in the subway. And they've been trying to stop this. So Trump had Russia, Iran, and China on the ropes. He took us out of that crazy nuclear deal where they would have had it in a couple more years. They would have enriched it. We're going to start, I forget, World War Three. It's amazing. And, you know, there's a lot of Democrats who aren't on board with this. They don't care. They're going to do the deal anyway. Do you know there's a, this thing? Yeah. Is, you know that deal is supposed to evaporate in 10 years? And we're already seven years into it? I mean, they cut that deal. I mean, Trump went in. Uh, they cut that deal how many years ago? They probably cut it in uh, 20. Trump got elected 26. They probably cut him. Yeah, there's only three years left in this deal, and then they're allowed to do whatever they want. The theory is once Iran becomes part of the family of nations, they won't need a nuclear weapon. No. Everybody in the Middle East is going to have a nuclear weapon if they're allowed to do this deal because China's going to do it too. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to be back with Governor Mike Dunleavy, again, the 12th governor of Alaska. We're going to get the truth behind oil and gas. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Biden would rather turn to dictators like those in Iran and those in Venezuela rather than turn against the climate elitists who dictate the energy policy of that Democrat Party and of his presidency. So now he's trying to pass the buck to Vladimir Putin. And that was Senator Barrasso over the weekend, third-ranking senator in the, in the Senate, and just talking about uh, the frustration of knowing that we have the energy here at home to make us more secure everywhere and help out Europe, and he's not turning to it. One of those energy states is... Alaska, Governor Mike Dunleavy knows it well. He's the 12th governor of Alaska, elected back in 2018. Governor, how frustrating is it to hear that the administration is looking elsewhere for oil and gas and vilifying oil and gas companies, making them the gougers in this whole thing? It's incredibly frustrating, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I mean, Alaska, like Texas, like Oklahoma, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, we're, we're an energy giant. And the idea that um, you would you would forego the opportunities, not just in jobs and revenue, but in making sure that we're secure nationally in, in terms of our uh, our defense and just our security overall, and turning to foreign uh, foreign foreign uh, oil sources, especially those from uh, nefarious characters, makes no sense at all. We got oil and gas here in huge amounts. We could help make uh, America energy independent once again, like it was just a couple years ago. And uh, help our allies as well. So it makes no sense at all. So, so how much did they tell you to, to level off when it came to flowing the uh, the flowing uh, oil and gas through a pipeline? Well, we we're, we have about five hundred thousand barrels per day still going through our, our uh, Alaska pipeline. At its peak in nineteen ninety, we had two million barrels per day. We produce about 18 billion barrels through the uh, pipeline from the slope, but we have upwards, some estimates, upwards of uh, 40 billion barrels on the north slope and uh, offshore, uh, still, uh, still to be, uh, still to be developed. But we can do it. We have the infrastructure. We've got the markets. 
we've got it down here in Alaska. I mean, we probably have the toughest environmental regulations on the planet. We don't flare our gas. That was a state decision many years ago. And so with regard to the environment, we do it better. With regard to it being American oil, it's cleaner oil, and it's available for, it's available for the country as well as our allies. So, um, again, we, we've got the ability, we've got the infrastructure, we've got the oil, we have the markets, we do it better than anyone. This idea that you're going to go overseas, and this is the irony, Brian, uh, for the environmentalists. You go overseas, you can almost guarantee you're going to accelerate the destruction of the environment overseas. You do it here, you can almost guarantee that you'll take care of the environment better here and and as a result of not being over there, take care of the environment overseas. So it's a win-win-win across the board for this country and for states like Alaska. So let me ask you, tell me how it works. For example, why aren't you doing 2 million barrels a day that you were – why, I mean, if the if the need is there, if the orders are there, why don't we? Why don't you produce it? Who's telling you not to? Well, because it is very difficult, uh, oftentimes, to get projects permitted. For example, we have two projects, at least two projects. I could name more. One is Willow. One is Liberty. And we had a federal uh, a federal judge, for example, uh, put a put a halt until there's further uh, further environmental study on. Willow, for example, because now the new thing is to not look at the environmental impact per se at the site where the drilling is taking place. But now they're using this idea that you have to look at downstream carbon use. In other words, once you sell the oil, let's say you ship it to some other state or in some cases some other country, now they're, they're saying that you have to consider that carbon that will be released as a result of the burning of that oil. And so they're coming up with all kinds oh. of reasons not to produce oil here in America. But again, Makes no sense because if you're going to burn oil from another country, I can guarantee you it's going to be hard. it's going to be developed under questionable environmental practices, and they're still going to they're still going to ignite that oil in one form or another, and you're still going to get carbon. So uh, it's really a, it's really an effort by uh, some federal judges. It's an effort by the agencies within the Biden administration. Uh, it's a social engineering approach to America. We're not running out of oil or gas. It's just the slow boat approach. They, uh, the idea of uh, offshore oil leases, as you know, when the Biden administration first came in, they were going to put a halt to that. We all had to, uh, the oil producing states, put, put together a lawsuit to fight that. So it's just a continual slog. And I got to tell you, the, the Russians... The Saudis, the Iranians, and others, they're laughing all the way to the bank. And they I, I got to believe they think we're crazy. I know. There's some people, there's some Russian officials who say they want Alaska back. Does that worry you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, uh, good luck with that. We've got, uh, we've got, uh, we're a Second Amendment state, Brian. We've got hundreds of thousands of armed citizens. We've got a robust military, robust National Guard. Uh, that's not going to happen. That That's just, that's ridiculous. So, uh, there's got a couple of things. I don't understand. In 2018, with the tax, with the Trump tax plan, they passed the, uh, they allowed drilling in Anwar. What? Why yeah. weren't you able to drill in Anwar over those two years? Well, that's a very good question because the Biden administration uh, is trying to put a halt to it. And again, the interesting thing about that is that was a bill that was passed. That's law to actually sell those leases and open that up. But again, uh, we're being slow voted by agencies and we're being slow voted by a policy decision that once again wants to kill oil and uh, gas in this country. And so 
we have an agency that uh, uh, works on deve- development projects such as oil and gas, and they purchase some of these leases. And so they're, they're filing suit against the government once again in order for the government itself, the federal government itself, to follow its own laws that were passed in 2018. So we're being sanctioned by our own government is what's happening, Brian. It's amazing uh, why this is allowed to stand. But they also find out, and how do you feel about this? Russians might have been financing some of the advertising and the political push to sell green energy to stop people from – to stop the West from fracking, especially in America, and to make sure that the green movement was pushed forward because the Russians want this market to themselves. How does that make, how does that make Americans feel? Well, is that really a surprise to those that really understand how this works? I mean, that's the irony of of this whole discussion is you have the Russians producing oil in the Arctic. They don't have the environmental standards we have, yet they'll finance NGOs in an effort to shut down oil production here in Alaska's Arctic, which has done better than anywhere else, especially better than Russia. Yet the environmentalists will gladly uh, gladly take their money so that they can um, do the bidding of the Russians. This is um, th- this, should get, this should get the attention of a lot of folks here in this country. And again, that's the irony in, in many respects to some of these extremist environmentalists. They'd rather take Russian money in order to help the Russians produce oil in a dirty manner in the Arctic at the expense of American jobs and security. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a terrible thing, and I hope uh, more and more Americans understand what's really going on. Could we help with natural gas from? Uh, can Alaska help with natural gas to Europe? Well, here's where Alaska can help with natural gas. We have a permit ready project here. We we could actually de- uh, deliver gas to our Asian allies: Japanese, Koreans, Philippines, Vietnam. We are closer to uh, we are closer to Japan than any other source of gas on the Pacific, especially now that uh, the projects in Sackland have been closed down as a result of the war uh, with Ukraine. And so Alaska is ready to uh, uh, develop their gas project. We have, uh, we have the fifth, fifth largest uh, gas reserves in the country, um, and uh, we've got trillions of cubic wow. feet of gas that we can deliver to our allies if uh, we get this project going. We could deliver that gas in a, several years in a, with the construction of this project, another gas line, the length of the uh, Trans-Alaskan Pipeline for oil. So we're ready to go. Uh, we're looking uh, – we've got – we're in discussions with investors, and this environment that's occurred here over the last several weeks as a result of this war has made, uh, made Alaska gas a lot more valuable to uh, – to our allies. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, Governor Mike uh, Dunleavy is with us from Alaska. But Jen Psaki's got a problem with your whole industry. Listen. Let me give you an example. Um, there, there have been some, including the American Petroleum Institute, who have claimed that this is an issue of having access uh, or funds. Um, the oil and gas industry has a lot of permits. Onshore alone, more than 9,000 unused approved permits to drill. And I would note that only 10% of drilling is happening on federal lands. The other 90% is on private lands. But I'm talking about the 10% in that case. So the argument that there are just no opportunities to drill for oil is just not true. The phenomenon that we're actually seeing is much more about firms uh, wanting to return cash to investors than about a lack of opportunity. Okay, there's the oil expert, the oil tycoon, Jen Psaki. So do you have a problem with her argument? Yeah, yeah, I think we all should have a problem with her argument because um, when you shut down the Keystone Pipeline, 
when our oil plays are either being shut down by federal judges or slow voted by the very agencies that the Biden administration oversees, uh, that, that kind of rings hollow. You wanna, if you really want to drive down the cost of energy, if you really want to save the environment, if you want to really ensure that we have national security, uh, we take care of our national security. And Brian, just as importantly, if you truly believe in a new green future of renewables, you can't just turn off the spigot to oil and gas and expect the, uh, the um, uh, renewable age to uh, magically appear. You've got to have a transition, and that means oil and gas. And you've got to have enough oil and gas to meet the demands of us and our allies so that we don't get ourselves in another position like we see with uh, the Ukraine and Russian war that's happening. So her, her arguments, take, trust me, from coming, from coming from an oil state, her arguments do ring hollow because we're in several lawsuits against this government, this federal government, to get oil production going. So, no, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Nine? There are 9,000 open permits. Why would a permit still be open? Uh, difficulty getting uh, getting the project sanctioned, the overall project sanctioned. Uh, there is a possibility that some of those permits, maybe they, they looked at oil and uh, the actual amount of oil, the production may not have been there to justify huge investments. And the other reason also could be there's such an uncertain future for oil and gas in this country that you probably have some investors saying, we're not sure if we want to invest in some of these plays. We may want to just invest overseas. And there's a big push to divest, too, from major oil companies, right? Yes, Yes, you've got major oil companies, for example, Goldman Sachs, I'll call them out, that uh, uh, have said they're not going to do any, any investment in oil in Arctic Alaska. Yet they'll invest in Arctic Russia. So it's a combination of these things in which there's a war on oil and gas. Um, and really, in the end, what's going to happen is um, this is going to be a, this is going to be a price war on the people of this country as well as our allies. And Hopefully, it's not yeah. going to make us any more secure. Right. I hope it'll be definitive in the election. We'll find out if the people can do, if the Republicans can define this effectively and not let those statements like 9000 permits being unused because oil companies want to gouge the public. If they could do a good right. job doing that, then they'll deserve to win the election by just going with facts. But we'll see. Uh, Governor, thanks so much for bringing reality to this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And keep up the good work. Thank you. one 866 I'll come back and find out what you have to say. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. So far, China's gotten away with it. By it, I mean they're the invisible hand behind Putin. They're the ones who are funding the war. Roughly half of Russia's gold and and currency reserves are controlled now by the U.S. and by the West. He can't get access to them. But the other half, the Chinese can provide access to, and they've been doing it. They also have the world's largest credit card now in China. They've allowed everybody in Russia who has this card to charge things. The trade and the purchase of long-term energy supplies undercut the sanctions because it shows Putin he's got somebody in his corner for the next five years or more. There's a number of ways that China's support is just crucial for Putin. I believe the Chinese could stop the war with one phone call to him. And that's the whole thing. That's why the what the ambassador said to... 
face the nation when you said, oh, don't be naive. Condemnation doesn't do anything. Yeah, from anybody. From us, it won't do anything for Russia. But from you, it will do everything because without you, Russia doesn't have the money to do this. They have absolutely no friends in the world. And they say they don't want any. Why do they have the ability to do that? Because they have you on their back. And uh, sadly, India has let everybody down because they said, oh, we've had a long-term defense relationship with Russia. We're not going to stop it now. We have their spare parts. So we're going to get the cheap oil, too. But they have to bring it to us. So that's, that's the penalty. We're not going to buy it until we actually see it. Here's what Chris Christie said about this whole thing. Cut seven. I think the guy who's really in a bind this morning is President Xi. So he's encouraged this. He's encouraged this to happen, but he doesn't want to get too hot. He doesn't want him to take that next step. You know, you, if you're Xi, you don't want biological or, or, or chemical attack. You don't want tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons to be used because he knows the result of that will be the rest of the world will not only unite against Russia, but against those who are supporting them like China. So if you're President Xi this morning, you are walking the thinnest of tightropes with Putin. You don't want to get rid of Putin because, let's face it, he's the neighbor. He can count on him to be the despot like Xi is. But on the other hand, if Putin is as desperate as John claims that he is and that members of our intelligence community claim that he is, and he is going to resort to that, Xi is, I, I would be confident if he's smart, is going to get on the phone with Putin and say, not too fast, cowboy, because if you do that, I'm out of here. And if China leaves Russia, Russia's finished. Wow. Uh, there's no question. And I believe for the most part, you go, go back and forth because, you know, it's an oppressive society. It's, it's opaque. It's hard to understand what goes on, except for if you want to know what message they want out, they have their own newspaper, their national newspaper. So that message that's in that is really the government talking, pretending to be journalists. So what you do have is Omicron hitting them hard, harder than any the harder than they've been hit since 2019 when they when they gave the world this pandemic. And then what you have is growth at 5%, which is usually you take two points off that, maybe it's 3%. When they're getting usually 18% growth, 10% growth coming out of the pandemic, that's big news. And when you have a series of things that happen to wipe out capitalistic tendencies and permissions within that country, within their business, they've been nationalized. A lot of industries coming in and taking businesses that were successful, discouraging people like Jack Ma from creating the next Alibaba. Then you have the leveling off of success. And you got a guy looking for a lifetime uh, leadership role, gets five and a half years. And President Xi, this might not be the best time to be best friends with the world's number one pariah, and that is Russia. What they do like about this situation is that we're not focusing on them. We're not focusing on Hong Kong. We're not focusing on the Uyghurs. We're not focusing enough on Taiwan. What I like about this situation, I think when they see what's happening with Ukraine, Taiwan's going to fight. And if we give them the right weapons, they're going to prevail. They'll find a way to live and survive. And if China wants to form an unnecessary war, with Taiwan, as if Taiwan's an actual threat, we're not going to let it happen. And we're not going to let it happen for other reasons. Number one, if you let Taiwan go, goodbye all democracies in the region. Uh, Australia, South Korea, Japan, all want to see Taiwan thrive and survive. The whole world wants to see them survive outside China. Why? They're the number one chip maker in the world. Because we moved a lot of our chip making industries, even though we invented the stuff, we make them elsewhere to make them cheaper. And if you and right now we can't get enough chips to sell and make uh, new and used cars, replace them. And now if something where Taiwan is dominated by China, is invaded by China, and they have control of chips, we're not going to get as many chips. We're not going to get them on time. 
So that's going to be a big thing. Also, China sucking up all the cobalt, which is needed for all these electric cars, uh, especially in the Congo. Not a good reason. Uh, not, not a good thing for America. Thanks so much for listening. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks Kilmeade. so much for listening, everybody. It's uh, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, but heard around the country, and now more than ever, I hope, heard around the world. You can always get the podcast. If you ever miss it live, BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You get anywhere you get podcasts. Steve Hilton in studio. Uh, it's great to have anybody in studio, let alone a guy that's usually 3,000 miles away. His show is The Next Revolution, a big hit over the weekend. You probably watched it. I listened to the – Steve, what I do is I listen to the replay. But last night uh-huh. I saw the original and I saw the replay. Great. And I saw the minute you said I'm in New York, I said we got to make sure Steve comes and does the well, radio no, show. I really came to New York to see you, Brian. So I'm right. glad we made that I'm happen. glad you said that because it seems self-aggrandizing for me to say it <laughs> because I sensed that it was for me. Pete, could you get a second source on that? Can you I get got on two there? and three other sources. I think we need to validate three other that sources? claim. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. Before I officially introduce Steve, we'll, we'll talk about that. He's in studio. And the bottom of the hour, Brett Bear also trying to make it in this business. I'm not optimistic. Let's get there. Let's no, get to the. He's trying. It's nice to see someone put the effort. He's given 110%. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets off a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. A delusional Chris Murphy of uh, Connecticut, I just had to share that with you, dealing with Iran. Dems say we have no choice. Any reasonable person would say talks with the terrorist nation led by Russia has to be the stupidest high-stakes decision the world has seen since our epic fail in Afghanistan. We'll discuss it. Number two. There are compromises for which we cannot be ready as an independent state. Uh, any compromises uh, related to our territorial integrity and our sovereignty, the Ukrainian people have uh, spoken about it. Uh, they have greeted them with weapons in their hands. President Zelensky, he was talking with uh, another network, but he also talked with the Knesset in Israel on Sunday. Story of two talks. What should Zelensky accept and demand when he finally gets to sit down with Vladimir Putin and President Biden heads to Brussels? What do you think he should say? What should his message be? Number one. This isn't the first three weeks, and these are quite senior generals. The bottom line is that their command and control has broken down. Their communications have been jammed by the Ukrainians. Their secure comms didn't work. Yeah, that is uh, David Petraeus uh, talking about what's going wrong and why so many generals are dying in Russia. Day 26, the battle on the ground moves to a new phase as Russia fails spectacularly to blitz into Ukraine and kill Zelensky. Now they're trying to rubble cities and take aim at civilians from the perimeter and actually capture them and bring them to Russia. I'm not kidding. What is the answer? Steve Hilton with me right now. Steve, I'm heartened to see that you agree with me. This is a conflict that matters. A lot of people want to say 6,000 miles away, never been to the Ukraine. Why is America getting involved again? I think that a lot of that comes from the suspicion about the intentions of our leaders. 
that arose during the Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq. And I can see, I can totally understand why people say, look, why should we send, you know, with these leaders, they send other people's kids to die in wars where America's interests aren't involved. But this is totally different to that. We didn't start this war. Putin started this war. There are so many reasons that we have to think seriously about the precedent we're setting. Here's an analogy that people might uh, relate to, which is right here at home, when we think about crime, Constantly, we're seeing what happens when you don't stand up to criminals, when you kind of do like these George Soros-backed DAs around the country, try and see it from the criminal's point of view and not be too tough on them and maybe they'll just go away quietly and leave us alone. No, it's the exact opposite. If you've got violence and aggression and you don't stand up to it, we know here at home you get more of it. Exactly the same around the world. If you don't stand up to this kind of aggression, a nuclear power invading another country then you're going to end up with a situation where that's the message that's sent out to Russia, to China. And what else does it do? It it opens the door to the kind of nuclear blackmail that is truly frightening and could come back to our doorstep. We've got states around, countries around the world that say, well, look, all you need is nuclear weapons. Then you can basically do what you want because no one's going to stand up to us. That is an incentive for an incredibly dangerous world. And the final thing, I want to bring it back to economics because I think this is the part that actually people don't really make the connection enough, which is why is America the richest country in the world, our living standards, easily the highest in the world? People are saying China's catching up. That's true in terms of the overall GDP. But if you, if you look at the size of the economy per head, we're way ahead of China and will be for decades to come. Why? Because since our leadership in the world over the last few decades, we've been able to shape the rules of the world economy in our interests. If we hand it over to dictators and authoritarians like Russia and China to set the rules, that's going to hurt us economically as well. Right, absolutely. And the thing is, I'm not saying we have to go in there one-on-one and have to go in and, and grab guns, but if they're able to prevail there, they're going for Estonia, they're going to go for Latvia, they're going to go Lithuania, they got yes. the Kalingrad, which is basically a weapons depot, and that's ready to go. Boom. They'll be in before we could even blink. They can come in overnight, and next thing you know, they're engaged and they're taking things back, and they'll say, well, that's a NATO nation. Uh, let's go in and let's defend them. We're in a world war. And they'll say, why didn't you stop them in the Ukraine? Exactly right. Uh, and, and, and by the way, that, that just to, you know, to add uh, some validation to that point, if you want evidence that, that people say, oh, well, that's not real. He, he just wants Ukraine. No. Look at the essay he wrote. Putin wrote this essay, when was it last summer in 2021, which was the 6,000-word kind of uh, rant about the historical destiny of the Russian yeah. peoples. Lithuania was mentioned 17 times in that. Okay, he want, he thinks Lithuania is part of Russia, just like he thinks Ukraine is. Right. So uh, what I did is is on with uh, One Nation on Saturday night at eight o'clock, I did my stand up in front of a map. I just wanted to do two minutes, two and a half, right. and I just said, okay, here is uh, here is Europe in 1938. Here it is in 39. Here it is in 41. Here it is in 43. What has happened? All along the way, we tried to appease, exactly we tried right. to assuage, we tried to rationalize with a madman in Adolf Hitler. And guess who signed an appeasement agreement with Adolf Hitler? Joseph Stalin. And guess what he got? Invaded by Hitler. And he almost lost his entire country, but ultimately he would die in a swamp by losing 20 million or 25 million, an astounding number of people, 8 million of which were Ukrainians. So I'm not asking people to go back to the Roman times. This is recent past. Exactly right. World War II. 
And that'll look like a skirmish compared to what this is going to look like. Exactly right. And that word appeasement is so relevant. And, uh, you know, I had uh, on my on my podcast, my based out in California, I had a historian, a friend of mine, Andrew Roberts. He's a he's bio- the best. He's a biographer of Winston oh, yeah. Churchill. We hear a lot about Winston Churchill these days. Comparisons he did the, didn't he write Zelensky. the history of white people? He's, he's, yeah. a, he's, like, yeah. he's, he's really... English-speaking people. English-speaking people. And so Andrew pointed out... That you know, and I said to him, "Okay, you know Churchill very well through your research, not in person, of course." That you know, what would Churchill do? How would he be looking at this situation? He said, "Well, absolutely, clearly, he would be making the case that you cannot appease these people because you'll just get more of the bad behavior and the aggression." And we've been appeasing Putin. That's the truth. And it happened uh, with the pr- last time Biden was in power. In that, you know, remember, this is not the first time. This is this is the second time Putin's invaded Ukraine. He invaded in 2014. And basically, Obama and Biden did nothing. So what message does he get? I'll do it again. So you know what's so interesting? I don't know if you read the New York Times today or the Washington Post. It's pretty much the same thing. But they write about uh, how Donald Trump, well, yesterday was uh, George Stephanopoulos said, imagine if we didn't have all that distraction, if the president ever met, uh, if the if the president didn't, wasn't so upset with Zelensky and sent Mike Pence and had a meeting with him, they probably would have bonded because they're so much alike. And if we didn't waste all that time and to use all that uh, energy to arm them. I go, wait a second. That's what so What kind of ridiculous. question is that? Because Barack Obama had a chance in 2014, and he exactly. said nothing but MREs famously and blankets. That's not an exaggeration. But now they're saying that Vice President Joe Biden tried to convince President Obama to give weapons, but he wasn't successful. Oh, really? So they're like trying to whitewash Joe Biden's past yes. to try to make sense of what we're dealing with now. That's unbelievable to me. Well, that you know, that's what it's all about, because for them, it's about the you know, this is, this is they're not serious people. This is the, the fundamental truth about it. you can apply this to every Joe, area of policy. Be war, though. But they know they it's, it's all about the message and the spin. And they, they are not substantive, serious people. And the biggest evidence of that is what we've seen around the world in the year or so that he's been there. Remember, we were told, oh, here's the great foreign policy geniuses with the decades of experience. The world has fallen into total chaos since right. they've got there because people can sense the weakness. They can sense that these people aren't serious. They're kind of virtue signaling about climate instead of actually really hitting Putin where it hurts on energy, just to take one example. And they know that. They sense the weakness. And that's why you've got all this chaos around the world. They saw it with Afghanistan. So there's a few things going on. You're 100% right. And the thing is, I don't care if someone's a great speaker. You know, there's some great leaders in the past who weren't great in front of people. James Madison was not a great speaker, great mind who would stand up at, at different points and impress people with his leadership. But that wasn't his thing. So it doesn't bother me that he's that he's older. It doesn't bother me that he's not a great speaker. What bothers me is he doesn't know his weakness. Yes. And then you surround yourself with people that know, and then you implement. Well, my political capital got me the job. So let me get the foreign policy geniuses around me to get the policy straight, and I'll yes. represent them. So the fact is, the way he got out of Afghanistan, every general told him not to reportedly, and he got out anyway. And now he says the best thing to do is to get back into this Iranian deal. How is that in our best interest? And he has Russia leading the charge. He has Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken. He does not realize that he's being led by people he that is. aren't even in our best interest, and his instincts and experience aren't leading him in different directions. Well, this is what I've always said about Biden, right from the minute that he got the nomination. The truth about him is he is a total machine politician, right? For all his career, he's never been a leader on anything. He's been pushed around by whatever kind of power centers there are. Right, right. now, that's the, the woke left, the far left activists, it's the, the unions, the donors when he was in, in Congress, and the, and the bureaucracy. 
And this is what, you know, I've worked inside government. I say all the time, you get all the bureaucrats and they, they send you the options, the position paper. But if you don't know as the leader to set a clear direction, they walk all over you. And that's what's happening here. And that was totally predictable when you put someone like that who's not a leader. He's, he's just a, he's a machine politician who goes wherever the pressure is well, then, then into you the top job. So into this war in particular, if right now you're Zelensky, you're watching uh, your cities get raised around you, just rubbled around you. You're seeing great uh, one-on-one. Anytime they, they're going one-on-one with Russian forces, they're having success. They're seeing a lack of conviction, a lack of experience. They're seeing antiquated equipment. Having said all that, you know women and children are dying yes. on a daily basis. They're targeting theaters. They're targeting uh, hospitals and apartment buildings. When do you say, when do you talk? What do you demand? Knowing that there's a possibility that this thing all could break your way if you can hold out long enough. I think that seems to be what he's conveying. He's already saying, I want to meet, he says specifically, I want to sit down with Putin, I want to have a conversation. He's put in on the table the neutrality point. We're not interested in NATO. and that, That's not a rigid position. He's clearly showing that there's something to negotiate. But we've just heard him say, actually, the territorial integrity. That Look, this is a negotiation. He wants to have a negotiation. I think this is the interesting dynamic here. And the one that it's a should, fascinating one. There's so much at got, stake. Because, and, and it affects what, how we think about it, too, because... And this is a really important point, I think. It's like, yes, I think we agree. As long as the Ukrainians want to keep fighting, we should help them with that and do more. You talk to military people. I'm not an expert in that. But they say, actually, from a logistics point of view, we're not doing it quickly enough. This stuff isn't getting there um, as fast and in as great a quantity as it should be. We could be doing more. Not the no-flight, you know, short of provocative stuff that really will kick off a real direct confrontation with Russia. We could be doing more militarily. But the military stuff... In a way, that keeps the war going. And because Putin is clearly, as a matter of strategy, doing this butchery and slaughter, so it's, not, it's not an accident. He's deliberately killing children and women and innocent civilians in order to terrorize the Ukrainians into submission. So the real question is, how do we stop the war? And that's where you get into, into the massive opportunity that, that Biden isn't taking because of his weakness on energy and on China, those are the two things we could be doing to really put pressure on Putin to stop the war. We're not properly sanctioning him on energy. We're not telling the Europeans that they've got to get serious about um, funding his war machine, which they're still doing. Since the start of the war, the Europeans have sent Putin, since the start of the war, $15 billion for his energy. That hasn't stopped at all. China could stop this with a phone call, as anyone who looks at that relationship has pointed out. We're not putting any pressure on China to do that. We should be sanctioning China now, not just talking about it vaguely in the future like Biden did on that phone call. So there's a lot more that we could be doing to put pressure on Putin. And by the way, that helps America, too. If we unleash our energy industry, if we bring manufacturing home right. and start sanctioning China, that's great for America. That's not some sacrifice like they keep talking about. That's actually good for us. We have to find out what these China conversations are about that conversation in Italy last week for seven hours right. and then on Friday for two hours. We have no details on that. Why don't we get details on that? All I get is belligerent, sarcastic comments, mostly from the Chinese. From the Chinese. And, then, and the most I held, I literally held up the headline on my show last night because it's so extraordinary. The headline in one of the weekend papers was she warns Biden over sanctions. What? Like, she's warning Biden. He's the one that's allying with Putin and supporting him. So as we go to break, we can just play this on the way out, Eric. This is how it's being played in other shows. I know you don't watch other shows. But Dave Ignatius on Meet the Press said this 
about when Vladimir Putin got out of that meeting. He says Joe Biden came out very strong and laid it on the line. Listen. So I think Putin must be, should be worried that uh, China, his only meaningful ally, is distancing its, itself. I and mean, that's the way I read this call. That China wants to distance itself enough from Putin that it isn't taken down with this uh, invasion of Ukraine. I mean, in a sense, the biggest obstacle to Xi's China dream, as he calls it, this mm-hmm. idea of China emerging as a dominant player, right now is the alliance with Russia, which is a pariah. Which, which poisons uh, Xi's future. So I think the, the, the call was part of uh, a number of things we've seen. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. China's trusted relations with Russia is not a liability. Actually, it's an asset in the international efforts to solve uh, the crisis in a peaceful way. Why can't you condemn this as an invasion? Mm-hmm. Well, let's don't be naive. Condemnation. It sounds naive to say that's not an invasion. It <laughs> doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> So I wanted Steve Hilton to hear that, you know, is uh, the next revolution's on every Sunday. Uh, Steve, you haven't heard that interaction, but you see the evilness of China coming oh, out there. Exactly. Don't I mean, be naive. But this is what they're like. They, they are. It's a, remember, it's a totalitarian state run by the Communist Party. You know, they, for, this is what it's been like for years. They want the economic freedom, but they absolutely cannot stand any kind of challenge to the regime, to their point of view. They are an evil Orwellian state. Insecure. Now, and, and, and so you, you can't... That's why they talk like this. They talk like these the evil kind of bureaucrats. That's what they are. What do you say, Tal? Well, you put the bed, America put the bell on the tiger, now take it off? Or it's some... just ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. And you can't trust a word that they say. That's the other thing. You know, like, they, they, like their readout of this ridiculous... You know, barely even mentioned Ukraine, the, the conversation with Biden. I mean, it's just a joke. They are fully supporting um, Putin. They are... They are buying his energy and wheat. They're the backstop for all the economic. They're, they're getting, helping him evade the sanctions, the financial san- sanctions, the SWIFT, all the things that we've tried to do. Um, she's helping him avoid it. I mean, uh, it's just crazy. He's, on, he's allied with Putin. We only have uh, 30 seconds left, but I think in some way they're horrified that Russia's struggling like this. They never thought, in my humble opinion, they never thought it would last like this. They did. Russia does look terrible on the world stage. It's yes. not benefiting China to be their only ally. No, but, the, but it's, a, it's a massive miscalculation, and we now have to press home the advantage. As I've said for years, they're our number one threat. They're the rival. We need to make sure that they don't get the global domination that, that is their goal, their stated ambition. This is a moment of weakness potentially for them. We've got to really go after them as well. Normally I'd be on you for, your, uh, for dressing down on my show, <laughs> but you're always dressed down in life. Yeah, but look, Even I'm here. News- I, I came That's to see it. you. Is That's, that enough? That, that is enough. We're going to watch you, Steve, all the time. Thanks so much. Back in a moment. Brett Bear. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The problem with the deal is uh, it's badly constructed from the start. It doesn't say, well, we'll lift sanctions off Iran depending on Iran's change of behavior. It says, we lift sanctions off Iran depending on a change in the calendar, automatically. 
So Iran can continue its terrorism, can continue to gobble up nations in the Middle East, can continue any form of uh, aggressive behavior at once, and it gets uh, these freebies. It gets these billions and billions of dollars of sanctions relief, and it continues effectively to move towards its uh, nuclear arsenal. When people are telling you that this deal is going to prevent Iran from becoming nuclear, they're not telling the truth. The truth is the exact opposite. It paves a path of gold for them to get to a nuclear arsenal. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on with Mark Levin last night. Great interview, long form. He's relaxed. Just saying, what a disaster this is, and this is taking place, and I feel like we're all helpless in seeing it take place. Talking about the Iran deal being negotiated in Geneva without us seeing there face-to-face. Why is it that Iran suddenly is anxious to sign this? Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News, anchor special report, uh, joins us now. Brett, welcome back. Hey, Brett. So, Brett, I don't know if you saw that interview last night, but it seems as though we're all bystanders in a deal we know no details about, but no one's optimistic about it. No, I mean, frankly, I would say no one, but most people aren't. Right. I I think that we're one of, if not the only network uh, covering what we know about the deal and asking questions about the deal. I had um, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman on Fox News Sunday and, you know, asked specifically about this deal. And she didn't have many details, uh, but essentially said she didn't know whether it was going to be better or worse than 2015. Well, remember, 2015 had its own critics um, that said it fell way short in a number of different ways. But now to say it could potentially be worse in an environment where Iran is still funding terrorism throughout the region, and there's not that tie directly. Her argument was we need to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and deal with that separately. Well, as you heard from the former Israeli prime minister, that is, um, for critics, a non-starter because they think this is that one-to-one connection is not there. It, it's not there. And I just – and you look at the uh, the converse of this. It gave birth to the Abraham Accords. Peace broke out everywhere because Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, Bahrain, um, Oman, all these nations said, wow, if you're really going to take on Iran, uh, then we're going to – make relations with Israel. We see their innovation. We, we see economic benefits. We know they're not a threat to us. It became clear. All the things they told us in our history and social studies classes would never happen was taking place. And now we're undoing the impetus behind that. Uh, just to get another point of view, I pulled this. This is Senator Chris Murphy on Meet the Press talking to Chuck Todd. Is this the right time to do the Iran deal? There's no choice but to do the Iran deal. I mean, we're can you trust the Russians? I mean, this is a case where we have to we're we're working with the Russians on this. It seems like an awkward time to do that. Cut the Russians out. I mean, you don't need the Russians, right? The material that was being removed from Iran on the original nuclear deal Mm -hmm. went to Russia. There are other countries that can take it. You ultimately don't need the blessing of the U.N. to get this deal done. You think it's bad to have Russia as a nuclear power invading a sovereign neighboring country. Imagine what happens if Iran is a nuclear power. The rest of the Middle East will... So you're good with doing this if we find a way to keep Russia out of the deal. You'd keep them completely out of the deal. Either if they're in the deal or out of the deal, we cannot allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon. That sets up a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't understand why my Republican colleagues, having watched what Vladimir Putin can get away with with nuclear weapons, want to hand nuclear weapons to the Iranians. So do you have any, do you want to poke holes in any of his arguments? 
Well, one, um, Russia being a part of the deal, I'm not sure how they're going to pay for uh, enriched uranium. With what in this economy that is faltering and and the ruble is essentially zero. Two, um, you know, if anything, Ukraine is one of the examples of nuclear proliferation that's going to happen as a result of it. I mean, the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons, and look what happened. They got invaded. So if anything, it's not Iran's nuclear ambitions that are going to produce more people getting – more countries getting nuclear weapons. It may be Ukraine and what Russia has done inside that country. And third, I think that you know, it, it, the senator is uh, wishing that this is going to be ironclad and wishing that it's going to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But I think there are a lot of people, and it's not just the former Israeli prime minister, who doubt that that's as ironclad as he believes. I mean, look, it's going to sunset. The whole deal's got to be done. If There's one thing to say, this is a deal that's going to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. Some of the sub-things in, in that deal, we couldn't go to our military bases, not able to put cameras there, couldn't have snap inspections, all those things. And the fact is they're going to have all their money. The last time they started getting some money flush with cash, many of which they said well, it was frozen in our accounts that we saw arrive on pallets. They started uh, financing terror in a way we weren't even prepared for, especially well, killing Brian, our- let me just interrupt. But let's just put it in context. Just last week, the Iranians fired on or near our U.S. consulate in Erbil, Iraq. That's last week. And they are considering, the administration is, removing the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, from the terror blacklist a week after missiles were fired at or near our consulate in Iraq. So the disconnect here is real. No question. And the fact is it's done in top secret. And I'm seeing some of these reports saying they're doing a deal in which no administration could overturn it. I'm thinking to myself, in what country? Can this happen? Can you get a signed agreement that no future president can overturn that Congress doesn't well, get a it look has at? To be a treaty. Yeah, it has to be a treaty, a ratified Senate or treaty with 60 votes. And guess what? That would never happen. So what kind of deal can't be overturned? That's an executive deal. That's if there's another president and it's not a treaty that's ratified by the Senate, it can be overturned. Uh, quick other thing, Liz Cheney weighed in on that for those conservatives out there who think Liz Cheney is a liberal. Cut 33. Look, I, I just completely disagree with Senator Murphy's concept that we should be doing this deal. Uh, it is it is uh, wrong to be doing this deal no matter what. It is certainly indefensible with the Russians in the middle of it, given that they are a pariah state, that Putin is a war criminal. Uh, even if they weren't in the middle of it, though, this is absolutely the wrong time to be providing a windfall to the Iranians. Uh, and the deal does not stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. It actually gives them a pathway to a nuclear weapon. And, and I think that, that those negotiations should stop immediately. Right. Uh, that's what I think people should understand about Liz Cheney. She's a conservative. She's just against January 6th, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, listen, the foreign policy bona fides she has are, you know, she she's talked about this for a long time. She's been against the nuclear deal. She's been uh, tough on you know, Russia, she's been you know, very, very uh, aggressive on the foreign policy front, like her father. But um, when it comes to January 6th, obviously she is where she is and has spoken out. All right. Uh, real quick, Brett, uh, we have a situation where 
phase one, I think it's effectively to say that Russia's phase one of two or three D blitzkrieg to kill Zelensky, take the capital, and then put their own people in place has uh, failed in epic proportions. The second phase we're in the middle of now, and that is expand in the south, try to rubble the capital, rug, uh, rubble Kharkiv, Maripol, as many cities as possible until they give up. Is that the way we're going to see it now, the slow torture of innocent people who are not only in the in harm's way but are being targeted? And Zelensky's great forces, the left and many of which are civilian, being able to withstand uh, the, this type of pressure if they are supplied? I mean, what, how does this end? Well, I, I don't think it ends. I mean, I think it is a bloody stalemate right now that uh, continues. I agree with you that there's a shift in strategy on the Russians' part that seems to be bombard these cities in the south, make Mariupol bend at, you know, bending knee, and then maybe negotiate and say, we own the south and go about your way. I don't see the Ukrainians doing that. They have support now from not only NATO and the U.S., but from neighboring countries, they've got foreign fighters in there now that are, you know, fighting for Ukraine. And the pushback against Russian forces has been um, astounding. That said, the devastation has equally been astounding. And and a place like Mariupol, if you read that latest Associated Press um, right through where their people escape, uh, they're the last journalist that they knew of in the city. Uh, it's pretty harrowing. It is. And they said they said surrender by 5 a.m. their time. When the sun comes up, you better surrender and you could leave peacefully. If not, put down your arms. And the and the Ukrainians said, not a chance. We're not doing that. And they have picked up people in buses and brought them to Russian camps. So that's a new phase the capturing mayors. One got out is one phase. This is another phase where they're going to round up innocent people and take them out of the country. And give make them sign a contract that they work two years for free. I'm hearing all these different accounts. When President Biden goes to Brussels, what's at stake? What do you expect the message to be? It's got to be firm. Uh, you know, he's been very caref- careful to to make sure he's not provocative. But at some point, um, there there has to be a <laughs> provocative statement made. Uh, that that stops Putin, or at least makes him get to the negotiating table. Zelensky has has proven that he's a great speaker. He can rally people. The question is, can they hold out? And what's going to be left of that country after they do? Very true. Uh, what do you think is the readout from the China meeting that you go with? China has much more details and a different take than ours. We can't get a transcript, evidently. Is that something you're pursuing to find out what that two-hour meeting was like with translations, probably an hour? And then they had a seven-hour meeting in Italy. We don't have details of that except for sarcastic, abrasive statements after by China. How do we find out what's, what they really are talking about? Yeah, somehow the uh, National Security Council folks are not as uh, liberal with transcripts as they were um, under the Trump administration of foreign leaders' calls. Um, but the it, somewhere in between the Chinese readout, which doesn't mention Ukraine, and the American readout, which just barely touches Taiwan, uh, is – you know, in the truth, we're trying to get the Chinese ambassador on. He was on Face the Nation yesterday, and, and Margaret Brennan did a nice job pressing him on a number of things. But there is a reality factor that's just not there when the Chinese and the Russians talk about what's happening. Um, 
you know, if you look at these satellite photos in the South China Sea of these sandbars that essentially have become floating aircraft carriers for the Chinese, um, it's pretty amazing that the military buildup there and what they're saying uh, around the world. Absolutely. Brett, who do you have on tonight? Have you picked your panel? Brett Hume's going to be on. Nice. Uh, Marla Lesson, Ben Dominich. I think uh, we've got a good panel. We've got uh, Senator Joni Ernst just back from Poland. And uh, as I mentioned, we're trying to get the uh, Chinese ambassador. Have you, bro, you thought about bringing your A game again tonight? Is it, or are you going to wait for later in the week? I think I'm going to bring it. It's Monday. I'm going to bring the A game. All right. I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll dial it back to B on Friday. You got it. Uh, Brett Fair will be watching uh, 6 o'clock tonight. And uh, by the way, I'll be on Outnumbered, top of the hour. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm going to be on Outnumbered right at 12 o'clock Eastern time. Hope you join me there. I'll be the man. Uh, where am I going with that? Do we know? Am I going to one of the pods, or am I actually going to be allowed to sit on the couch? Do you know, Eric? You're going to be in a pod. Pod today. one. I'm not allowed to You're sit on the, the couch yet. <laughs> keeping, the, uh, keeping the men off the couch. I think that's a – maybe that's a mission I should go for. Uh, number one, and then, of course, we have One Nation over the weekend. Tonight I'm also hosting Primetime, Jesse Waters' show on Primetime. So I have a lot to do. I'm also going to go on Cudlow at 4 o'clock. So besides that, I'm going to have a very slow afternoon. So let's find out, being that we have so much time, and the war is the number one issue, and it should be. I have no regrets about that. I do want to know more. More to know. This is stunning, uh, but not concerning yet. Justice Clarence Thomas was uh, hospitalized with an infection. They said with flu-like symptoms, but not COVID-related. He's the longest-serving U.S. Supreme Court justice now. He was admitted to the Sibley Memorial Hospital over in Washington. He underwent tests, was diagnosed with an infection, is being treated with intravenous antibiotics. Let's hope that he is okay. Next, Maury, the show that I did not know was still on the air, will end after three decades of giving absolutely nothing to society. Uh, two years ago, uh, Maury and I decided two years ago, this is according to a statement that I'm reading cold, that this season would be the farewell season of the show. And while his retirement is bittersweet and we are so happy for him to be able to spend more time on the golf course, <laughs> a lot of people think with his family, but he says golf course, Maury is a television icon, a pop culture legend, and we couldn't be more proud to have been part of his incredible career. I didn't even know the good part of his career. I guess uh, Current Affair was a good part of his career. That's where I remember him growing up, Current Affair. But I, I don't know if he did. I'm sure I he can't did believe he news. ended up with a show like this. Though. Three decades. Right. And ba- the only thing I can tell you about the show is I know the one with the famous line, you are not the father. That's you I can are you. not. <laughs> Six years ago, this is a statement that he read. Six years ago when I was ready to retire, NBC Universal family asked me to continue the show. Even though I told them I was ready for assisted living out of loyalty to NBC Universal and my more than 100 staff and crew members, I agreed to do it. I'm so proud of my relationship with them. I don't want to say anything bad about him. It's just that I just thought he was different. And I, I feel bad for Connie Chung. What happened to her? Yeah, I mean, but I mean, she can't get a magazine show. He's the most famous, more famous of the two now. The best was with Connie Chung when she said, just between you and me. Oh, that yeah. Yep. And the camera and a million people. I think it was 2020. Next, Kanye West, who's so normal. He was barred from performing at Grad the Grammys due to concerning online behavior. Uh, Webs, uh, Webs, West's reps said 
that a, that a blast posted last Friday claiming that the artist team received a phone call Friday about informing him he had been unfortunately removed from the lineup performers for the show due to his concerning online behavior. West, is, who is up for the 2022 Grammy Awards, was not among the first list of performers announced on Tuesday. Uh, uh, Kanye sent Variety a link to that story saying, this is confirmed. The rep did not respond to requests for further information. The rep stated the decision was made partially because of um, his interaction between West and the Grammy host, Trevor Noah. West used a slur against Noah in an Instagram post comment on The Daily Show. West has directed a racial slur at him. I guess, what was the slur about? Am I allowed to say the slur? I, the, it was about his commentary on Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson. So West didn't like that, and then he uh, used some not kind words. All right. Hmm. I'm, I'm sensing that he's going up in flames, and that I never thought the Kim Kardashian Pete Davidson thing would get him this angry at everything. It's. I mean, he's got a long history of, of acting weird. Who was the, uh, the the singer that he went on stage and interrupted when she won a major award to say that somebody else should have won it? I, I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Mm, I don't remember that. Yeah, I forget who the singer was, but she wins an award. He goes up there and says, "You don't deserve it. Some, uh, Beyonce deserves it." All right, next. 42% of Americans share devices with others in the household. 36% of Americans share their Netflix account uh, with relatives. 13% with friends. Amazon, 22%. 8% with friends. Disney has 32% with 13% respectively with friends. ESPN Plus has the breakdown 16% with relatives and 7% with friends. Instinctively, I would not be happy about that. Would you, would you ever do that? I mean, if you're, I mean, within the same household, I mean, I'm sure you would share with your daughter and your son and your wife. Netflix is really ticked off at this. Yeah, they're looking to change the thing where they're going to charge people an an extra amount of money if you're you're doing it outside your household. The whole thing doesn't work for me. I never know what to watch, but I always find out I'm not watching the right thing. And I always say to myself, now what do I watch? And then I end up just thinking doing something else like reading. Your family's hip. They can tell you what to watch. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.